Good morning. It's a blessing and a privilege to be with you here this morning and to be part of our exchange of speakers. And uh, I trust that Dan is in enjoying himself and bringing joy to those at Sweet Communion. And we trust that God will be a blessing through his word, through me today, as we look at this passage that was just read in Mark chapter 8. We've been going through a series in Mark, and so I thought to take a look at uh, this section and to um, use it in our preaching of God's word today. Um, it's been a year, as Kurt talked about, um, since we uh, kind of got together our first time in a prayer walk in a community and what a blessing it was to 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 come together and uh, God has answered our prayer in helping us build relationships and so uh, Dan and Kirk and, and myself uh, have been a part of a men uh, of a pastor's fellowship that uh, meets monthly and that has been a blessing to to us and uh, uh, coming together of our communities in Milwaukee and the Milwaukee area we have others that are extended uh, um, as uh, as far as uh, Sheboygan and Kenosha and uh, uh, even west. We had uh, some pastors come from almost as close as Madison or as far away as Madison. So we praise God for that fellowship. But I praise God for the building of the relationship here. Believers uh, coming together with what they have in common in Christ. Now, as we get into God's word today, um, well, first of all, I told Kirk we were in trouble because um, I don't see a, a clock. <laughs> I have a watch, but I just wear it for decoration. You'll find out after the message how true that is. Um, so <laughs> I'm just going to use my own sense of timing here, and that's why we're going to be in trouble. So I warn you ahead of time. We're going to talk today with the topic of, do you get it? Do you get it? And I don't know exactly what your circumstances are. I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord, whether you have relationship with him, whether you uh, are, are pondering that and God's word is, is, is coming to you for the first time in conviction and he's challenging you to faith or you've been walking with Christ for a number of years. But the, the, the same question uh, um, is appropriate for us to ask, do you get it? And we've read this passage, so let's take a look at the, the various sections as we walk through. Some I'll cover in a little more detail than others, but let's take a look at it. The first thing we see is Jesus feeding the 4,000 in the first 10 verses. And a couple things that we know is that he makes, he, he says in verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd. It is good to know that Jesus looks out on people and he has a loving compassion for them. And this comes out in this passage because I ask myself, why does he feed these people? Why does he feed the group of, of 4,000 where he sees their need and he ministers to their need? But it's not just that physical need that he's concerned about, but he is concerned about the physical need as well. And so, because I always ask the question, well, he's going to feed them, but tomorrow, the next day, they're going to be hungry again, 
and they're going to need food again. So what is he doing? He is showing who he is in the way that he feeds them. And he's showing us much more of that, of himself and of his process as well. And I just want to touch on a few things there. He has compassion. He sees their physical need. Uh, he, show, he uses their physical need and his willingness and his ability to meet the physical need to show their greater spiritual need and his willingness and his ability to meet that greater spiritual need. How does he do that? He, he presents to his disciples that these people need to be fed. And they ask the question, the logical question, well, how in the world are we going to feed all these people? And he asks them, well, what do you have? That's, a, that's, a, that's a, a unique question. It's an important question to ponder. What do you have? Why does he even have them look out and consider what they have? He wants to show them their inability to meet the need so that they can rest in his ability to meet needs. So he has them look out and he says, we don't have near enough to feed these people. That's what he wants them to see. He wants us to see our inability, our lack of resources in ourselves to meet the need that we come across. And then he gets them together and he says, he takes the little bit that they have, he blesses it, and he distributes it to his disciples, and they give it to the people. Can you imagine being a part of that process? You're standing next to Jesus, and Jesus said, here, Peter, uh, just, just take this loaf and pass it on down. Okay, pass it on down. It goes down and down, and it's distributed. The, the, the group is divided in, by, by, by numbers, and, and so they begin to pass it out. And Peter takes another piece, passes it down, and they pass it out, and another one coming. Wait a minute. Another one. Wait a minute. Another one. At first, he's overwhelmed with the group and the size of it, and now he's like, where, where, where's this coming from? How are we meeting this need? I also note in this how Jesus does this. He could have just said, hey, people sit down, look now on your lap and find food. And it would be there because he said. Or he could say, okay, I want you to stand up and I want you to walk across to that field over there and, and grab as much as you need. Like he sent manna from above in the Old Testament. He could have done it that way, but he did it this way through his disciples. And I think he's showing us something. He's going to meet the needs of others through his people as he supplies the need. The disciples don't have it. The people don't have it. It comes from Jesus. He gives. They distribute. And it says then the people ate and were satisfied. God is able to completely meet the need. Now, why does, again, does he meet a physical need? To show his ability to meet the greater spiritual need. He's not just feeding people just to be feeding them because again tomorrow they're going to be hungry again. He's feeding them to show who he is. After this incident in verse 11 it says the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. You see the Pharisees are very contentious. 
they don't like Jesus, and they have already set their mind about how they feel about Jesus. They have totally rejected him. All through Mark, you'll see Jesus facing off with the Pharisees. Earlier in the chapter, in the chapter of Mark, he, he goes into the, the temple or the synagogue, and he wants to heal a man. And he's, he's going to heal this man, but he looks on the faces of them. And they're looking at him to see if he's going to heal this man or not on the Sabbath. Jesus is grieved at their attitude. He's about to heal a man, but all they can think of is, is he going to do it on the Sabbath? If he does, we got something on him. So they are very, they have rejected Jesus. And so they asked the question, Jesus, show us a sign. Or they make that statement. What sign do you show us? And he says, there'll be no sign given to this generation. And it's like he just shuts it off right there and says nothing else. But we see that they have rejected Jesus wholeheartedly. We can see his response to those who reject him. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, he says this. He uses sarcasm. And Jesus heard it. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. They were complaining that he had sat in fellowship with sinners. And he used sarcasm to answer them. In chapter 3, verse 5, the point I relate uh, referred to earlier it says he looked around at them with anger grieved at the hardness of heart as a response to those who rejected him he was angry he was grieved in this chapter 3 verse 29 and forward you can see his response uh, to those who would identify him with satan's work he condemned them. And in chapter 6, verse 6 of Mark, we can see his response to them is he marveled because of their unbelief. Marveled because of their unbelief. He refuses to give them any sign or put it this way, to give them any further sign. They had rejected all the signs that he had given them and he said, there'll be no more signs to you. I've given you enough, is what he says. And right after that, in our passage, he begins to warn his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. It gives us the circumstances. They were getting on the boat, and they had forgotten to, to get enough bread. They only had a little bit. And so Jesus says to them, beware. He says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And right away they start discussing, it's because we don't have enough bread. He, 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 he's, he's condemning us because we didn't bring enough bread. And then we see this discussion that Jesus has with them. Verse 17, Jesus, aware of this said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
Now, take, remember, he's talking now to his disciples. He's not talking to the general population. He's talking to his disciples. He says, is your heart hardened? He's, in essence, saying, what have you missed? Don't you get it? And he begins to remind them of what he's done. Verse 18, having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? That's a challenge to us as believers, that we act sometimes as if we've forgotten just what God has done, and we forgot who God is. I do it myself. Our church has just completed a a project, um, <clears throat> you've been in our, some of you have been in our building. So we have our chapel side and then we have our fellowship hall. And it's actually uh, parts of a building that were built at separate times. And so they're separate buildings, but they're attached. The fellowship hall had a bad, had a bad roof. And um, in our chapel, we had a miraculous event where God gave us money to, and we used it to fix the roof on the chapel side years ago. And I can tell you the story of that. Um, and, and, and we knew it took a lot of money that we didn't have, but God miraculously gave us that money. Now, on the fellowship hall, which was the older part of the building, uh, the roof was going bad, and every time it rained, the ceiling tiles would just be soaked, and, and uh, we, we just we continued to use it and, and uh, just kind of you know made, made best. And as a pastor, I'm just thinking, man, this is going to cost $70,000, and it's just a lot of money. We don't have that kind of money. Where are we going to get that money from? And I just, for literally for years, said, Lord, I don't know how we're going to do this. Our membership is just stable, but not growing in some fantastic way. Um, how are we going to do this? And, and I just struggled with it and struggled with it and struggled with it. And in fact, I never really presented any plan to our leadership team of, of what to do about that because I was just stuck. And I can hear God saying, do you not see? Do you not understand? Do you not get me? Haven't I not showed you enough in the past? And I could go through countless stories of how God has supplied great needs that, that I couldn't even envision that that would be done. But when I got to this point, again, here I was, stuck. I had a conversation with one of the men at the church. He said, well, Pastor, you ought to just have people start giving and see, see what God's going to do. And I said, you know what? You're right. You know, God often calls us to take a step of faith and to see him for who he is and watch him do what he's going to do. And so the disciples are there on a boat, and they say, we don't have bread. Oh, boy, Jesus warned us. We're in trouble now. And Jesus says, almost like scratching his head. Don't you get it? And he recounts what he has done. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12, right? And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces 
full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. So on their mind, they, 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 they had all the math, right? <laughs> 4,000 people, this is what we fed. This is how many is left over. 5,000 people, this is what we fed. This is how many is left over. And they're probably thinking, this is a math problem. Like, Jesus, I thought you told me there'd be no math, right? <laughs> this is a math problem. He says, do you not understand? Do you not yet perceive? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? What were they to, to get? Is it some special math that we're supposed to get a, a spiritual lesson from? Well, yeah, there is special math, but it's real simple. Puny resources, enormous need, God supplies. That's the math. Leftovers. Both cases. Puny resources, enormous need, God supply, and his stuff left over. He's saying to them, don't you get it? Don't you get it? It's not a mental thing. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. Do you actually trust God to be who he is? Do you trust Christ to be who he is? Now, if you're a believer, you know then that he has already saved you from your sin. He's given you grace and eternity with him that's promised and guaranteed. He's paid for it already. He's given you the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in Ephesians, as your down payment. What's the problem? So he wants us to ponder that. And the next events in this chapter are connected to that as well. So in verse 26, verse 22 through 26, something happens. Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. It says... Verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, well, hold it, just a minute. You have the same reaction I have. First of all, he took the man by the hand. This is Jesus touching people, right? In our culture, that's just a no-no, especially in our COVID environment. We've got to maintain distance. We've got to resist touching and interaction, and Jesus goes in and touches this man even more than that. He spits on him. Now, I don't know about your theology, but in my theology, that just doesn't work. What is he doing? He's doing something unusual, and he is personally involved in this man in a unique way. But that's not even the key. The key is what he does and what he accomplishes in this man. You see that? He asked the man, what do you see? He said, I see people look like trees walking. Something's wrong with his vision, like, whoa, everything is way bigger than it's supposed to be. It overwhelms me. 
It says Jesus touches him again. He opens his eyes and his sight is restored. He saw everything clearly. Uh, to me, that's almost like the, the central part of, of, of the message in the chapel here. He, by the touch of Jesus, sees everything clearly. That's where God wants us to be, to be able to see things in the right perspective. What is that perspective? In fact, I got grandkids, all 11 of them at church with me. So I have lots of fun. God wants us to see things clearly. See things according to his perspective, not our perspective or our human perspective, but to see things clearly. And the work of Christ works on us so that we might see that. So do you get it? Do you get what? Well, right after this, there's an account of Peter, Jesus walking with his disciples, and he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, uh, uh, and Jesus just breaks it down, but who do you say that I am? You see, people had respect for Jesus. They saw him as some of the great men in the Old Testament. They they associated him with respectable men, but that's not enough. Jesus is much more than all that. So he says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Do you see me clearly? And is your perspective of your own life in, in focus with my perspective. And so Peter steps up. And this is what he says. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. That's an important passage. Matthew 16 helps us understand that as well. He says, you, Jesus, are the one that's prophesied in the Old Testament that God has said will come, will be our redeemer, and will be our savior, the Messiah. You are the promised one. You and he are it. You are one. We've respected this title, and now we see you, and we see that they are one. Now, Jesus doesn't say, oh, man, you know, I ain't all that. That, that. That's a little bit too much for you to put on me. No. And Matthew says, hey, you didn't get that on your own. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. Our Father in heaven allowed you to see that. Corinthians tells us no man can call Jesus to Christ unless the Holy Spirit has done a work to reveal and to open his eyes and to let him see you are the Christ. Now, right after that, we see another incident. And, and again, these are all tied. And I want you to see this. In verse 31 through 33, Jesus begins to, to uh, foretell of his death and of his resurrection. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Verse 32, another key word. And he said this plainly, plainly. 
He said this plainly. Now what happens after this? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Something was happening in Peter's mind that caused him at one point to say, you are the Christ. I know who you are. And now at this point, to rebuke Jesus, said, no, 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 no. That, that's, that's, not, that's not the way it's going to be. That's, you know, Peter is saying, that's not the way I envisioned it. I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. And notice Jesus' reaction. He doesn't put his arm around Peter and say, well, you know, Peter, you'll come along and you'll finally see that um, you were wrong and I was right. He says, get behind me, Satan, in a very strong rebuke. And he says, I'll have nothing to do with that type of thinking. I know who I am. And you must know who I am. You can't say, I am the Christ, and then say, ah, this isn't going to happen. You see, Peter was probably thinking, look, this Messiah who is to come, we're looking for great things from him. We're looking for him to redeem Israel. We're looking for him to take the foot of the Roman government off the necks of Israel. We're looking for him to bring redemption, to save us, to put us back on the map, to make us God's great people again. Jesus, in fact, was going to do that, but not in this timing. First, he must suffer. He must die. He must be crucified. And this is the part that probably just flew right over Peter's head. He must rise again. Jesus clearly taught that this is the work of the Christ, and I am going to do it and complete it. But when it came to Peter, it's like, no, that's not registered. I, I don't get that. I get you, conqueror. You know, in, in the word of God, I know you've been going through Revelation, and in the word of God, we see that two-sided picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you know, the world, just like the world, they, they naturally just see one side or the other. We see Jesus as the lion, the conqueror, the one who is going to redeem his people with a strong and mighty hand. The one who's coming in the clouds, in the air, in glory with his angels with him. We sang about that, in fact. And that is true, every bit of it, of Jesus. But the Gospels portray Jesus also as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And it was just very difficult for one human mind, such as Peter, to put both of those into perspective. To see that this Christ who is to come, the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, is going to be also the lamb crucified and, yes, risen. Peter couldn't fathom that. And Jesus would not let it go that he couldn't fathom it. This is undeniable, Peter, and we don't go anywhere from here with you rejecting that. Do you get it? You see, Peter struggled. And I think we also struggle in our walk. 
as we wrestle through life, as we look at our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's about and what he's doing in our lives, we struggle with who he is. So Jesus rebukes Peter and then he goes to this. Verse 34 through 38. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, you deny yourself and he says, take up your cross. And that's an interesting statement to take up your cross and follow him. He's saying that I am going to take up my cross, and as you follow me, you're taking up a cross. There is suffering. There is uh, ridicule involved in following Christ. There is going against the flow and against the crowd or against expectations when it comes to walking with Christ. Then he says this, whoever would save his life would lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He said, you can spend your life on your own agenda doing your own things, and in the, in the end, you will lose it because those things don't value and mean much in, in the end when God examines those he says, otherwise, you can lose your life to this world and the gain of this world and the appeal of this world. And you can give yourself wholeheartedly to me. That is a sacrifice. I'm amazed at how often Christians today try to preach a gospel that doesn't require sacrifice. You can continue to be you. Just come to church. Jesus says, no. Mm-mm. There's a sacrifice required. You must lose yourself, lose your life, and gain Christ. The sacrifice is well worth it, but it is indeed a sacrifice. Let's not try to soften the gospel or Christianity. It requires the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus pro provided the ultimate sacrifice in him giving his life for our sin, and it requires us to sacrifice as well in so many different ways. So he says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I could profit, I could go after all the things in this life and gain them, but what have I gotten if I don't have relationship with God through Jesus Christ? He says, what can a man give in exchange for a soul? Nothing. And so he ends by saying this. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He's saying, in essence, to a person who thinks like Peter is, look, I am coming. The lion is going to come. And he's coming in glory with his angels. 
But don't be ashamed of the lamb either. The lamb is the one who had to be crucified, who had to be spit upon, who had to be mocked by wicked, sinful men. And he's saying that in essence to you and me and to Peter, don't be ashamed of being identified with the Christ who is the lamb. You ever felt you had to apologize for something that God said? <laughs> you ever felt that you had to apologize for God's purpose or God's plan? He says, don't be ashamed of what I say, of my words. Don't be ashamed of who I am. If you are, I'll be ashamed of you in glory. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Many of those who were following Jesus had a wrong sense of his purpose. Like Peter, they thought the Christ would come and free them from the Roman domination and right away usher in his kingdom. Christ would rule as king. Truly, Christ would come and will come and rule as king, but first, he is to be the lamb. Jesus teaches what it will be like for those who follow him. Those who follow Jesus must do as he has done. They must be willing to suffer. They must be willing to sacrifice. No, it's not the same suffering. It's not the same sacrifice. We're not called to die on the cross for the sins of others. We could not. But indeed, we're called to sacrifice and in some cases even to suffer. And Jesus tells us that we should not be ashamed of that, but embrace it. He is coming. And he's coming in great power. You know, the world ridicules our Savior now because it seems so lacking in power. The world turns to all types of means for its remedies. And they look at us, I had a person just this week kind of, they wouldn't say these words, but in essence they want to say, you know, the Christian way doesn't work, and that's why we have social unrest the way we have. You've been trying it the Christian way for so long. Let us do it our way. And I thought how ridiculous that statement is. That's not God's purpose of what he's doing now. He's not prettying up and dressing up a world. He sees a world that's headed for destruction. He sent a savior to pay for sins of those who would trust him and turn themselves towards Jesus. His kingdom is coming. So he says, don't invest and get all tied into this world's solutions. But trust in Christ and do not be ashamed of him. Identify with him, walk with him, sacrifice for him, and live for him. Do you get it? We don't always understand all of God's purpose and all of his timing, but he challenges us to trust in the Christ who gives himself for our lives, who is able to meet all of our needs and sufficient for all that we need. Father, we thank you for your word today. 
We thank you for the reminder. And we get disappointed when your way doesn't come out the way we thought it should. We want to repent of that. We want to turn from that. You rebuke Peter for that statement. Help us to embrace all of your truth without shame and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as a lion and as a lamb, as a conqueror and, and as a one who looked defeated on the cross, but we know what he accomplished. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.